Father, would you welcome us into your story this morning in a fresh way as we gather together to celebrate the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord. Help us together to understand what that means for us on a daily basis and what that means for us together. We ask for fresh, real-time insight. God, we ask for fresh power and boldness to truly trust you and to walk in it by faith. May our conversation be real and may it glorify you. May it build us up, but more than that, God, we need you to transform our minds and our hearts to glorify you with all that we are and all that we have together. In Jesus' name, we are trusting. Amen. One thing I want to announce, and this is kind of getting us into the teaching this morning, is, and I mentioned this a little bit last week, as we read through these scriptures, a really appropriate way to think through it and apply it in particular is to think about active and passive. Active is something that you do. Passive is something that is done for you or to you. So as we're reading through these scriptures, there are many things we cannot do. I cannot save myself. I cannot pour out the Holy Spirit on myself. I cannot be a good person by myself. I need someone to do that for me. And here's the good news. It has been done for me. What I actively do is what? Believe and receive it. That's the, that's the active part. So as we continue to read forward, I think what a lot of people do when they read the New Testament is, oh, wow, it's commanded here to be bold. I really need to work on being a more bold person. Is that what they did? As you read this week, how were they bold? What did they do? They prayed that God would make them bold. And he did. Therefore, they were able to keep preaching. Does that make sense? So it wasn't just that they kept preaching. They prayed. That's the active part. That God would make them bold. And because he did, they were able to keep on preaching. Are we clear on active and passive? And just to kind of keep reading that, because a lot of people feel like now that Jesus has saved me, it's up to me to be bold. It's up to me to use my spiritual gift. It's up to me, like somehow we're back to pulling up our bootstraps and figuring this thing out alone. No. We walk in the power of the resurrection on a daily basis. And we walk in the assurance that Jesus has ascended and is seating at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. That Christ has died for our sins, so we are completely forgiven, so we have complete access to God to go to him to pray. That has all been done for us. It is up to us to pray that God would do that in our lives and then to believe and to receive it and to move out in faith on it. Active, passive. 
Any questions on that? That's how we need to read the entire rest of the New Testament. Before this, we had the law, and that was something outside of ourselves, and they did need to work harder at doing things. Could they? That's the point of it all. They couldn't. They didn't. So God himself lived the perfect life for us, died to conquer sin and death and the forces of evil for us, rose again for us, ascended to heaven for us, so that we could glorify his name and be his witnesses in the world. It doesn't stop with the for us. It's for us so that we can then be witnesses of his glory. That's the story. Okay, so active, passive, and walking in that and figuring, you guys, I even, and this is what I told the leaders, I even this week, and we'll talk about, we'll get into this, I even this week had to, okay, and I have been, by the grace and, yes, power of God since age nine, have been a Christ follower. Went to church, was taken to church by my parents pretty much every Sunday morning. Where we got there at 6.30, we had to drive 30 minutes. So my parents woke my brother and I up, and we were in the car at 6 a.m. So they could make the refreshments and coffee for a young adult small group every Sunday morning. So I grew up observing my parents serving. Then we would go to Sunday school, and then the kids would sit in church. So I was taught twice on Sundays. We would go back Sunday nights for GAs, Girls in Action, where we learned about missions around the world. And we had choir on Wednesday. We had fellowship. We would go early on Wednesday nights where we would eat dinner together and fellowship with everybody. And then we would have choir. That's what I grew up with. And we would go to summer camp. The first time I ever went to summer camp with my parents, I was six months old. And we went back every year to Glorietta. Different weeks. Missions week, evangelism week, uh, worship week. We would go different weeks each year and we would go and do that. Then I went to seminary. Still this week reading this, I had to say, now how would I articulate what the resurrection means to me on a daily basis? I'm just saying there is something and maybe that's a conversation for us to have. There's something hard, I don't, and I don't know what it is. I was like, is it spiritual warfare? Is it that it was 2,000 years ago and I didn't see it with my eyes, so maybe this is life of faith? I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I do know in us coming together that the resurrection from now on in our women's ministry absolutely needs to be at the core of our conversations and our encouragement. At the center, when we talk about our kids, there ought to be something that we talk about the resurrection and the power of Jesus in that. We cannot detach anything from our life and call it good if it is a separate conversation from the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He is good alone. So every conversation that we have about our own lives, our kids' lives, our neighbors' lives, the, the health of our nation, everything is in the context. And not that I'm trying to be like, we're not going to get this. Okay, look, this is going to be organic. Like, I'm not going to be like the resurrection police. The law doesn't work. So this is not me being legalistic. 
This is us coming together in agreement like the early church did, saying the resurrection is absolutely the core of who we are. And without the resurrection, this means nothing. I'll talk about that in a little bit. So, I just wanted to let you know, talking about this stuff is even hard for me for some reason. But maybe it's because we, it's something that we need to talk about together. So I'm just going to start there, and I'm going to take this stuff off. Um, okay, so first of all, as we're reading through the book of Acts, okay, so now we're going to start teaching. When Luke wrote the book of Acts, he wanted us to read it on two levels. One level is that this was something that happened in history to the early church. So this is a historical book. You know how we had history books in the Old Testament? Basically, we learned from, from Bob, like it started with Genesis and then it went to Nehemiah. And then you have like the prophets and the poetry um, the wisdom literature. In the New Testament, this is the history book. That's why, as we're going to continue reading chronologically, Acts is going to be scattered as we read the letters to the churches. So does that make sense? So Acts talks about what happened historically, and then we will, when he went to Ephesus, will be in Acts where we'll read about he went to Ephesus, and then we'll read the book of Ephesians. Does that make sense? So we're still going to continue being chronological. So this is something that historically happened. And, that, and Luke absolutely wants us to read that. That this was a, an event, events in history that happened. Um, and I think Megan's going to help us with that next week a little bit. To understand it really historically happened and there are things that we can know. Because she's a history teacher. That we can know even the history around it. There are Josephus was a historian at that time. We still, we have his writings. Nero was part of the reason the persecution started. We have historically, apart from the Bible, we have known history of Nero. So this is a historical event that we're going to be talking about. But he really absolutely wants us to read this, again, I shared last week, not just as like, a lot of people call it the Acts of the Apostles, and again, if you name it that, it's almost like, again, we're going back to the, act, the active and passive. Like, these are things that the apostles did. Versus, it really could be called the acts of Jesus, almost like part two. Right? Because we end, we ended in the Gospels with Jesus saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So this really is the acts of Jesus and a recorded history of those who believed him. I mean, that's kind of an appropriate title for this book and how Luke would want us to read this book, that this is the continuing life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus as we read in Acts. Even though he is not physically on the scene, and that's part of the awesomeness of the resurrection, and we'll get into that in a minute, but that is absolutely how he wants us to read the book of Acts. And if we read it that way, then we have to come to the conclusion that even though Acts ends in chapter 28, 
because Jesus has not returned yet. They would call that the day of the Lord. We have not experienced the day of the Lord yet where he comes back the way he went. That we are still living in the age of the Acts of Jesus part two. That is us. We are the continuing teaching and life of Jesus. So we are Acts 29. Does that kind of grab you a little bit? It does me. Because where I'm going to have us in today, I brought up the whiteboard again. We're going to break up into seven groups, and we're each going to take a chapter, and we're going to share from each chapter, so one, each group will have one, one chapter. What did we have in common with the early church? Because there's a lot that we share in common with the early church. And we're going to talk about what does that mean for us. That's an Acts 29 conversation. So we, when Luke wrote this book of Acts, that's what, how he intended for it to be read. And as we read it, there are absolutely two fundamental things he wants us to latch onto, that the early church latched onto. One is the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no gospel. Bob and I were talking about this last night. And see, these are interesting conversations to have. And I came up with these questions as I was saying, why is it hard for me? So it's not bad for me to say out loud, why is it hard for me to articulate the significance of the resurrection in my day-to-day -day life? Like, why is that hard? Ask whatever question comes to your mind, because that could actually be the Holy Spirit pulling you in, helping you work out your salvation. It's almost like we feel sometimes like, I can't ask that question. That would be really embarrassing. I bet I'm the only one who thinks that. I promise you, you won't be. That's why I shared with you that it's even hard for me. So let's ask. Let's talk. Let's think. Let's articulate. Let's question. Let's talk these things through. But the reality is, if there was not a resurrection, there would be no gospel. We would just, at best, be forgiven. But then we would die, and that would be the end of the story. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there's no resurrection for us. There's no eternal life for us. There's no going to heaven and being with God foreverness without the resurrection of Jesus. There's no power to live the Christian life. There would just be forgiveness for every time we blow it if God chose to just receive Christ's perfect life and death. That would just be the end of the story. We would be forgiven and we would die and then death would still be victorious without the resurrection. And there would be no pouring out of the Holy Spirit because it's the ascension of Jesus where God said, I receive you, my son, and your perfect life and your perfect death and now that you have conquered the grave, well done, come up and sit at my right, I've got goosebumps, sit at my right hand and you dwell here with me and because of your holy presence from earth coming to heaven, now my holy presence can be poured out on all those who believe in your name. So without the resurrection and ascension, no Holy Spirit, no holiness for you or me. We are stuck in the Old Testament, maybe forgiven when we do it, but no eternal life, no power, no Holy Spirit, no way to enter boldly into the presence of God in prayer. None of it. 
And the, Holy, the early church got that. It was all about the resurrection. Luke wants us to understand that. That is fundamental to the Christian life is the resurrection and the ascension. The second thing he wants us to focus on is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a new, new and powerful reality. It was a new relationship in our lives where now heaven and earth are connected. Where in the Old Testament were heaven and earth connected? The Holy of Holies. And only one guy could go in there one time a year. Other than that, you had to offer all kind of offerings and sacrifices. But there was not that intimate connection that we now have with God. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It was a, the Holy Spirit transforms us and makes us whole so humanity is restored. It's not that we become gods. We just come, become restored humanity. You're going to see in the beginning chapters that they're asking, when's the time that Israel's going to be restored? Right? And Jesus' point to them isn't that Israel is going to be restored, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you. And yes, you will be my witnesses, but it's not just to Jerusalem. Who is it to? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the whole earth. So God is not restoring Israel, which is what they thought he was going to do. He's restoring humanity. That's the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit for all who believe in the de life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In chapter 1, he starts off with proofs of the resurrection. That's where he ended with Luke. That's pretty cool. I'm not going to go into that today. That could be a whole other meaty, juicy, wonderful apologetics conversation. A lot of people know C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, um, Lee Strobel. All these guys set out to disprove the resurrection because they knew if I can disprove the resurrection, Christianity falls apart. What happened to all of them? <laughs> they, they found the proofs of the resurrection and they became Christ followers understand too when Jesus appeared to the disciples they were all together as the Holy Spirit being poured out that is something that Christianity isn't an individual faith an individual life Christianity is a choice that each individual needs to repent and make but Christianity is a togetherness. Even Bob has begun really leading our church this year and thinking through together loving him more. And that's huge for the book of Acts. It is a together faith. There's a love and a community and a witness that we have that is more powerful as we are together. And that's the way that God intended it. Really, I would summarize it with love. God is a God of love, and he intends for us to be his people of love. So that together is where love happens. 
It's interesting where he says um, where the authority comes from. The authority comes from God, he says, in chapter 1. But he has given us, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power. And it comes from the root word, I love this, dunamis. What word does that sound like? Dynamite. Man, that is aging me. Anybody else? <laughs> Dynamite. That's the root of the power. There is something explosive that comes into our life when the Holy Spirit was going to come on the scene. But again, what does he say when we are going to receive this power? Why do we receive power? And I think this is huge in our day and age. Because our world tells us it's all about personal identity and personal power. Why did he say we were going to receive power? So we could be witnesses. Witnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of God in our life and in our community and the way that we love one another. The world was going to bear witness to who God was because of the power in our lives. So the power is given to us to be witnesses. You guys, this is as old as Genesis. This is as old as Abraham, where he says, I want to do life with you. I want you to go into all the world, and I want you to bear fruit and multiply, and I want you to have dominion with me over the earth. That's Genesis. And then with Abraham, he says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to multiply you, and your people will be outnumber the stars so that the world will know that I am God. It's always been that I'm God, you're my people, have faith and trust in me so that the world may know me. So this is what he has intended to do, and this is what he's doing. What was their automatic response after Jesus told them these things? Pray. Prayer is always going to be the response to something like this. They prayed and they devoted themselves to Scripture. That has always been what the people of God should devote themselves to. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But one thing, and I'm not, I don't want to unpack, I could, this is just the richest stuff in the whole world that we're reading this week. But you will see Peter did it, Stephen did it, the early disciples did it. You will see them looking back at David. You will see them looking back at Moses. You will see them referring to the Exodus. You will see them referring back to Jacob. And here they're referring back to the 12 tribes of Israel. They're understanding that basically there's a new Israel that's coming, and so there need to be 12 disciples. They knew that because they had devoted themselves to prayer in the Scripture. So as Jesus is telling them something new is coming and new power is coming, what was their response? We need to get into the word and we need to pray. It's what they did. It's what they're going to continue to do. And it's going to be the source of the early church as they're bearing witness is referring back to, hey, what you see happening now, you, it looks like we're drunk. It looks like we are out of our minds at like 9 in the morning. But what's really happening is something that you should be able to recognize because it goes all the way back to Father Abraham. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. It goes back to King David. What you're seeing happening, it's the same God. But now he has come in a new and powerful way. He's beginning the new creation. Something new is happening. 
And one thing I wanted to say before I, I moved on into some of this is I am so deeply proud of all of you for devoting yourselves to the Word of God the past two and a half years. Well done. Can we just celebrate what you have done? It hasn't been easy. Well done. Well done. You have been women who have devoted yourselves to the word and to prayer. And I would say to us now, what is it now that God wants to do with that? What did he do with it when they devoted themselves to the word and to prayer? He did amazing things that they could never imagine. I hope God does amazing things with us that we could never imagine. It's going to be different than the early church because there was something uniquely happening at that time, and I'll, we'll keep getting into that. But again, where we're going to end today is what do we have in common with them and what might God want to do with us? But well done, women, devoting yourselves to the word of God in prayer for the past two and a half years to understand what is happening now. Well done. Chapter 2. Best way I can introduction, here comes the power. Here comes the power. Anybody with me? We'll just write a new, we'll write a new song with new lyrics to that. This is one of the things that blew me away. And again, why is God, why is God connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament? Because these, and he still does, because it's always been who he is. Again, we have heard people say, and we kind of address this with the Old Testament of, I really like Jesus, but the God of the Old Testament, not so much. Do you see? It's the same God. It has been the same plan all along. And as we see what he's doing and what I'm about to share with you, this has always been the heart of God. Love, justice, grace, truth, life, power, the God that always has been and the God that is and the God that always will be. And Jesus is coming in a new way to begin a new creation where man can be restored to God through Christ. His life, his perfect life, his death to conquer sin, his resurrection to conquer death, and his ascension to connect heaven and earth until the day of the Lord where he will return and it will be one final end beginning. <laughs> end beginning. That's a new word. End beginning. Here's what happened. Passover. Passover is when the perfect lambs were killed and their blood was put over the doorpost so that the angel of death would Passover then. Remember this in Egypt when we studied that. Passover now is it's basically a week celebration. That's when Jesus died. Jesus died the week of Passover. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. It always was. So back in the day, what happened at Pentecost, 50 days, and originally it was a celebration of the beginning of the harvest. So the first uh, sheaves of wheat were dedicated to the Lord in prayer and in hope that the rest of the harvest would be good as well. 
So that's one reason that they celebrated it. But it was also the day, 50 days after the Passover and Exodus, that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and came down with the law. Here, Jesus, 50 days after he died, is going up to heaven and the Holy Spirit is being poured out on Pentecost. Moses, up the mountain, down with the law. Jesus, up to heaven, down with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? I'll add one more detail. I don't know how big of a detail it is. It probably meant something. And again, this is so the Israelites could get this. And I'm going to read something to you for a second. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. So, both events occurred on a mountain, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Both events happened to a newly redeemed people. The Exodus marked the birth of the Israelite nation, while Pentecost events recorded Acts 2 marked by the birth of Christianity. Both events involved God's people receiving a gift, the Torah and the Spirit. In both events, the gift was given by God, settling on a mountain with fire of his Spirit. Both events took place at the same time on the same month. The Israelites left Egypt on Passover and 40 days later arrived at Sinai. Then Moses went up on a mountain to see God. Ten days later, Moses came down with the Torah and the Israelites broke the covenant by doing what? The golden calf, right? Broke the covenant and 3,000 people died as a result. Jesus died on Passover and 40 days later went up on a mountain to see God, the Mount of Olives, and 10 days after that he ascended and the Holy Spirit came down and 3,000 people were saved. Why would God do that? 50 days after sacrificing the Passover lamb, the Israelites received a covenant with God. 50 days after sacrificing Jesus, our Passover lamb, believers received a new covenant from God. Both events had similar sounds and symbols, wind, fire, smoke, and voices. The fire at Sinai was one of fire visible by all. The fire at Pentecost was individual fires on every person. In the event at Mount Sinai, the people were kept away from the fire, but in Acts, the fire came to the people. Both events had theophanies, which means God showed up. In both events, God gave his law to his people, and in both cases, he sealed the covenant that he had made with them. At Sinai, he gave the law written by his finger on tablets of stone. At Pentecost, he gave the law written on tablets of heart. In both events, a mixed multitude of people were represented. The Torah attempted to change people from the outside. The Holy Spirit changes from within. Think about these parallels. Wouldn't they have been powerful to the Jewish people that would have been there to celebrate this time? See, they would have been celebrating the Passover and the Pentecost. That wouldn't have been powerful to them to celebrate this time long ago when God showed up in fire, wind, and smoke, and voices, and suddenly it looks like God is showing up again in the same way that he had come before. They see fire and smoke and hear voices, and the place is shaking violently. God is back. What is he telling us to do? Should be what the hearts and the minds of every Israelite was like at that point. Looking at this history makes the story of Acts so much deeper and increases our faith in the God of the Bible. His plans for us were made since the beginning of time 
and are exact down to the last detail. What a mighty God we serve. I think another thing that's interesting is, you guys remember Babel, when man arrogantly and pridefully came together, which if you were in my house every now and then, you would hear me say, there's Babel. It's still alive. We know, again, I taught on this when we were studying Babel in the Old Testament. We know that Babylon is going to be in Revelation. Finally, the end of Babylon will come to its complete end. Babel is when man arrogantly said, I mean, literally, if you go back and look at it, it's in um, right down there. Gen it's Genesis 11.4. It was man's prideful attempt to build a tower with the tops that go into the heavens and make a great name for themselves. Does that sound like what Jesus has done? Going into heaven and then coming down and in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So even back in Genesis 11, man's arrogance was to go up to heaven himself and make a great name for himself. And what did God do? He confused their language so they couldn't do it. Now fast forward into Pentecost. Now, with the giving of these tongues, every nationality that was there understood the gospel in their own language. So this was reversal of the curse of Babel. It's huge. God was now saying, yes, come together as a people. Yes, come together. But let it be in the name of the risen heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, and then let it be in the power of making his name great. The gift of tongues was given so that every tribe on the earth could understand the gospel. Awesome. Awesome. Babel was overturned in Christ. He refers in chapter 2 to the last days and into the end day, and I'm not going to teach a lot on that. We're going to have a lot of teaching on that, but just to, for us to understand, the last days with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers, and this was all prophesied because, again, they call, they bring back Joel, they bring back David. David didn't resurrect, but they're quoting some Psalms where David talks about the resurrected king. So they're looking back in the scriptures, and they're like, Prophecy is being fulfilled. These are the last days. Because Joel even said, in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out. So they understood, right? These were the last days. But there is a day of the Lord, which the angel talked about. You know, he's like, and both times that the angels appeared this week, it was basically, why are you standing around? Get going. Right? I'm releasing you for prison not to go be free and just kind of stand around. I'm releasing you to prison to go keep preaching. And here the, the Holy Spirit is coming to them and saying, don't just stand there, keep looking. He's going to come back the way that he left. They literally saw him go up and, I mean, that would be wild, right? It would be kind of cool, but it would be wild. Seeing something literally just like, and then come back down. But the last, so we're in the last days of when the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all believers. 
and the new creation has begun. But there will be a day of the Lord when Jesus will come back and wrap it all up. So we are living in the in-between, just like the early church was. When Jesus resurrected, when they were watching that happen, I want part of what I want us to understand is they didn't think that he was some holy spaceman, some astronaut, literally going to a physical place so that if we got on the Starship Enterprise and we were to take a spaceship somewhere beyond our universe, we would finally find a planet where Jesus is and that would planet would be called heaven. Like, that's, that's not how they understood it. They understood heaven and earth being like two sides of the same reality. Remember in the beginning where God created the heavens and the earth? Like heaven and earth was meant to intertwine. And when the day of the Lord comes back, heaven and earth, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, right? So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he's not in a physical location, he is in the realm of God, but because he had lived perfectly on this earth as a man, he is comfortable here, he is Lord, always has been, was, is to come, now heaven and earth in Christ are joined together, and the Holy Spirit, which heaven is the only holy place, but because now we have been made holy because Jesus is holy, now the holiness of heaven is able to come and dwell on earth in us. No longer in just the holy of holies, but in us. We have been rescued. This is the first time in scriptures that salvation is mentioned. Interesting, right? We throw that word out all the time. This is where it's beginning. It's beginning at Pentecost, where Peter is explaining to them what is happening. And in chapter 221, he talks about all who call upon the name of the Lord. And anytime you see name of the Lord in your mind, what needs to go off is perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. When they said name of the Lord, they were talking about all of that. That's who he was. That's whose name now has power. Why did they need to differentiate name of the Lord? Because there were Israelites at that time that God, Yahweh, Adonai, was who they thought they were worshiping. But really what they're going to point to is that you really, you've just been going to the temple and you've been doing rituals. If you want to know God, again, God of Passover, God of Pentecost, right? They're getting all these signs that it's the same God. Now they're saying this name of God that saved you is Jesus. Right? So it's so powerful that they continue to say, you were healed in the name of Jesus. You were saved in the name of Jesus. When you have faith in Jesus and in his name, you will be saved. There's no other gods. There's no other Greek gods. There were Greek people around that time. When you see Hellenistic, that basically means Greek. Hellenism. When you see Rome, who did they believe were their god? Caesar. So they're saying it's not rituals and it's not the temple. It's not Zeus. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus. He is the one who we saw die. He is the one that we saw resurrected. He is the one that we saw 
ascended. He is Lord. There's no other gods. Nobody has ever done that. No other religion can say that their Savior, their teacher, is resurrected and ascended. In the name of Jesus alone is our salvation. And they'll come back to this. They do it in, uh, they, they, Peter speaks it in 221. He speaks it in 238, repent and be baptized. Back then, baptism and in this historical moment was referring to the Exodus, how they passed through water and were released from slavery and were set free. Now we are baptized. We are set free as we pass through the water. We are set free from sin and slavery. Baptism. So he was talking to them about that. You must pass through the water. And then 319, he talks about repent and turn back that your sins may be forgiven, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is the mighty rescue mission that has happened. But what we need to understand, and verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, makes it really clear, salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Repentance is a turning around and being rescued. But it's not just a rescue, and this might be something you talk about in your groups. It's not just a rescue that one day when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. It's a rescue now. What in your life is a trap of temptation? What in your life is broken? What in your life is a habit you just can't give up? What about the life of your kids? What about the life of your neighbors? What about the brokenness and the corruption in our world? God rescues us from that now. We are rescued and we are saved now. I, this week, spent some time, and this might be something that you uh, talk about in your groups, how would you, and I told you this was difficult for me, like I had to take, type it out because I'm like, I don't think I will remember this in the moment. Like it's something I need to and I'm going to move forward and meditating on. But what does it mean for me now to be a rescued one, to be an alive in Christ one, to live powerfully and restored? What does that look like for me to live in the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus? I put here, for me personally, on a day-in, day-out basis, and I'm just going to kind of rattle through this, but this might be something you talk about in your small groups. Would you mind if we turn, is anybody still cold? Is it okay if we turn off the heater? Is, okay. Any, okay. Okay, good. Okay, good. Um, Jesus' life and death for me on a daily basis means I, my sins are forgiven. I'm declared not guilty. There's no condemnation. There's no loss ever of a relationship with God because I'm in Christ and his life and death has paid for my sins. His righteousness is imputed to me. I don't have to try and be perfect. Jesus was already perfect for me, and the Father sees it that way. I can be confident in God's love. That's what Jesus' death and life mean to me. What does Jesus' resurrection mean to me? On a daily basis, I have no fear of death. Instead, I have a hope for heaven. And I have a hope that this world will be restored to a new heaven and a new earth. God's justice will prevail. I have that hope, even as I look at the craziness in our world. 
God's justice prevailed over Jesus. He was wrongly crucified, and God rose him from the dead. And he said, nope, this one is innocent. This one has conquered death. And God declares that in Christ, that is available to me and to this world. It means that I have power over sin in my life. You have power over sin in your life. It doesn't mean that we are going to be perfect. God chose to transform us and sanctify us slowly. But it does mean I don't have to choose sin. Before Christ, it was my only option. I was in rebellion and separate from God. Now I'm with God and I have his power. I have power over sin. No more excuses. At our tables, if somebody's like, I'm struggling with sin, we need to say, well, you have power over sin. And we say this in the most compassionate, gracious way because we all understand we're all there. But we say, how is God showing you to live life his way? The only option you have isn't being stuck. That's not our only option anymore. We have a new option in Christ, and we have the power to choose that. And as we continue sometimes to just gut it out, choose it over time, and I know you've all experienced this, you find out you begin naturally choosing it over time. But for a while, you have to rely on God's power to choose it. Over the holidays, I got stuck eating a lot of sugar. It is not good for my liver. I could literally cut my life short. That is not obedience to God. I have a sensitive liver. I'm not going to go into the whole story now, but I do. The numbers show it. I know continuing to eat sugar over a long period of time literally is not into obedience to God and that it would cut my life short. He's not going to change the consequences of my choices. But in that moment, last night, instead of eating sugar again, because I was like, I have the power not to eat sugar. Everything in me wants to. It's a craving of my flesh. I went upstairs instead and brushed my teeth. There's something about brushing my teeth that I don't... Cr I see some heads nodding. <laughs> it's very practical how God's power comes into our life. I want to live for God. I don't want to, on my own, cut my life short and him have one last witness here. Now, if he's ready to take me home right now, he could. But I'm not going to make choices taking life into my own hands as if it's my life to cut my life short. I want to be a witness for him as long as he wants me to be here. So I need to make choices, and I have the power to do it. We need to encourage one another with this. I don't know what your thing is. And I understand. You guys, I, I think it's, such a, it's not a shallow thing for me, to be honest, to talk about not eating sugar. That's not a shallow thing for me. I actually feel very sad that I can't just sometimes enjoy. It's like, well, man, I can't enjoy that, and I can't enjoy that. <laughs> If I'm living for God, I want to live completely for him. But you guys, I have struggled, and you know my family's story, with forgiving people that are mentally insane that are doing things to you and saying things to you. I know the power that is needed to forgive. I know the power that is needed to go visit them in a nursing home. I know the power that is needed to help your mother-in-law who has Alzheimer's live in your home and help her bathe her when she has soiled herself. I know the power that is needed to love people. So we could talk about sugar, or we could talk about the power to forgive and the power to love. We need God's power to live life his way. And we have it. We have it.
That's what the resurrection means. Without the resurrection, we are fools and hopeless. We're going to read Paul say it's just another religious sect. Maybe we have forgiveness, but there's no power over sin to live life for God and no eternal life to look forward to. What does Jesus' ascension mean to me? It means that I am accepted just as much as Jesus is accepted and loved by God. Why do I know that? Because God received him and accepted him into heaven. And I am just that accepted. We're going to read in Ephesians, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What would that look like on a daily basis if you knew that about your life? What would that look like? I am able to set eternal priorities. I know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me. So it's not just, and for my kids, and for my husband, and for the world. I am not alone when I pray. I am literally praying with Jesus, and it says that the Holy Spirit interprets my groans. This is all accomplished by, not by my good works, not because I go to church, not because I read my Bible. All of those things keep me connected with heaven and heavenly power. But I have all those things because of the death, life, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Period. There's no other way to have those things. I can anticipate life with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the new creation. I can have the fruit of the Spirit. That might be something you talk about in your group. What would it look like for you to really walk in the resurrection and ascension of Christ? But what I want us to see is that it's not just a me and God relationship. It was definitely a we, and we see that at the end of chapter 2. What did they devote themselves to? They devoted themselves to witnessing. No, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong thing. Teaching, fellowshipping, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. They devoted themselves to biblical teaching, coming together, fellowship the Lord's Supper and Prayer. Do you guys know at this point they don't even have a name for themselves? Like church wasn't even a name. So how did they identify themselves? Here's how they identified themselves. Here's how we should identify themselves. Ourselves. They were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They were the ones filled with the Spirit. They were those who believed in the name of Jesus. They were those who were being rescued. They were those who had love for one another in Jesus' name. They were those who went out into the world, and we're going to see, and made a difference as witnesses in the world. That's how they identified themselves. It wasn't by their name. It was by his name. They were the ones who trusted in Jesus. That was how they knew themselves and had themselves to be. There's too much here. Um... How were they healed? They were healed by faith in Jesus. He brought them to wholeness. I think it's interesting that God healed this man. Did you guys notice that? Outside of the temple. That's interesting, right? It was at the gate. So the Jews now, those who are being saved, are seeing what Jesus said, that you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. So where, again, the holiest of places used to be in the Holy of Holies. Now where are the holiest of places? In us, wherever we are in the world. We are now like the Holy of Holies because the Holy Spirit 
dwells in us. That's important to see, especially as we're about to get to chapter 5. That we begin to see holy and powerful things begin to happen outside of the temple. That's on purpose. The Holy Spirit is moving out into the world. They prayed for boldness. Um, chapter 4, 29 through 31, what a prayer. God, you see those who are oppressing us. And we pray for boldness anyway. We love that. And then fellowship. It is more than friendship, but it's not anything less than friendship. And may we know that. Fellowship is not more than friendship, but it's not less. It's more than friendship, but it's not less. Okay, I kind of quickly went through those things. But we'll be talking about those as we keep going. So... I was talking with Megan yesterday looking forward, and this is something that just needs a little bit of care, is chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. Mm-hmm, everybody says. Why? Dangerous holiness is how I would label this chapter. So if now we are like the holy of holies, and especially, gals, what happened to, in that moment, this was a point in history. It was a unique pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And God was showing to the Israelites of that time and to these new believers that, again, my dwelling with you is no longer in the temple and no longer in the Holy of Holies. My dwelling is within you and among you. My holiness. Do we think back? It didn't happen a lot in the Old Testament, but think back to the time when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines back into Jerusalem. And there were people who were specifically sent by God to be guardians of it as they brought it back. It was on a cart. The cart began tipping. The guardian reached his hand out to steady the Ark because in his mind he's thinking, I don't want the Ark to fall to the ground. But it was the representative of the very holy place of God. And when he touched the ark, what happened to him? He died. Similar, right? Similar to that. Similar to only one person, one time a year, being allowed to go into the holy holies. And in case he died while he was in there, they had a rope around his legs so they could pull him out. You guys know that? Dangerous holiness. This is what was happening in the, Old Test- in the New Testament beginning of the church. So when Ananias and Sapphira, who had just experienced these tongues of fire and this Holy Spirit being poured out, they lied. They were even given a chance to repent. They didn't. They doubled down on their lie. And what happened to them? They were killed. Dangerous holiness. There is no such thing as cheap grace. Everything that had happened to them was by the grace of Jesus, all that he had done and all that he accomplished. And see, if our understanding of Christianity is good and bad, I'm going to be a good person. I I go to heaven. I get to go to this really holy place because I've been a good person. And then we look at this and we're like, lying's not that bad that he should be struck dead. But we're not talking about good and bad. And even in scripture, it says there's only one good person. Jesus, God himself alone is good. So this isn't about people being good and bad and going, is that really fair of God to strike him dead? There were holy things happening. 
And grace is not cheap. It was paid for by a glorious, loving Savior. We shouldn't take that for granted. I mean, almost now these days, I was thinking as I was reading this, there are a lot of people that are like, oh, our church is so full of the Holy Spirit. And I would want to say, are people dropping dead when they make sense? Well, then we're all kind of in it together. We're in this season where there is grace, but there are some passages. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. And I'm just going to summarize it where it says that there were people that were taking the Lord's Supper without examining themselves. And Paul says, and there are many sick among us because of that. That's an interesting thing, right? That's in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. So before we take the Lord's Supper, it's important that we examine ourselves. The Lord's Supper is the body and the blood of Jesus. Not literally, but that's what it's representing that was shed for us so that we could have intimacy and eternal life with the Father. We should not take that lightly. So we need to examine ourselves before we do that. 1 Corinthians 5 is another interesting one where it talks about, it's a really interesting one. Um, there was sexual immorality in the church. And Paul addresses the rest of the church, not just the person committing sexual immorality. He says, what are you doing not addressing this? And he literally tells them, turn him over to Satan. So if you read that, it's like, what does that mean? Basically, let him keep going in his rebellious ways. There are just two paths on this earth. There's a holy way, and there's a rebellious way. And when we're in rebellion, there are consequences to that, and we're separated from God. And that realm of rebellion is Satan's realm realm of holiness and wisdom is God's realm. So if there is somebody in the church that's proclaiming to be a Christ follower and is actively doing something that is sexually immoral and they list some other things in 1 Corinthians 5, the church needs to address it. And if he is not willing to repent, we do not treat him like a believer. And in that passage, it literally says, don't judge people outside of the church. They don't know any better. It literally says, Judge people inside the church. That's a little bit reflective back to this dangerous holiness with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, God's thank the Lord. He's not just going to drop me dead when I sin. But he does tell me to examine myself, and he tells you guys to hold me accountable. And not act like I'm a Christian if I continue in my sin. Holiness goes along with salvation. It's the only reason we have the Holy Spirit. It's the only reason that we are able to approach God in prayer, which how many times did you read prayer? Prayer is where we get to literally connect with heaven. We get to boldly go into the very presence of God. If we're doing that while we're pursuing sexual immorality and willful sin, there is a break in my fellowship with God. And I might not be a Christian, you shouldn't treat me as one. You should love me. Maybe you tell me the gospel again. Maybe you talk to me about the death, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and say, why isn't this connecting with your life? I'm not going to treat you like we're in fellowship as Christians. You need to judge me. Please judge me. That's where that overlaps with us. Thank God, again, for his mercy that he doesn't just drop us dead. 
but he gives us these two things in church. Personally, examine myself. Corporately, Christians judge one another. Interesting, right? Don't go to your tables and be judgers. <laughs> but if you know someone, this guy was having sexual relations with his dad's wife. If somebody's sitting in your small group today and you know they're doing that, talk to them, right? Okay. And don't say, I don't want to judge. Oh, please, please, right? Their eternal salvation is dependent upon it. And those who are around that guy in the New Testament, as he's proclaiming to be a Christ follower, they look at his life. Is he bearing witness to Jesus? Healings in the apostolic age, there were times that people were healed, there were times that they weren't. Even those who healed ended up dying later. So basically their attitude was, Jesus is Lord, and we have now witnessed his love, his justice, and his power. So you know what? We come, and this is actually where, and I'm not going to go into it, this is where Stephen ended as he looked up into heaven, and he said, Lord, take my spirit. When he said that word, Lord... He was saying, you basically are Yahweh. And all those who were stoning him would have understood what he was saying. Yahweh, Adonai, uh, Kyrios, Lord. That's the translation through the languages. You are loving. You are just. You are powerful. You can do whatever you want to do, and I worship you. When we call Jesus Lord, that's what we're saying, and that's what Stephen, even as he was being stoned and forgiving them for what they were doing, was saying. We give God the freedom to be who he is, however he wants to be. And for now, as with the stoning of Stephen, he has said, I'm going to let the enemy war against me for a period of time. But there will come a time where God will say, no more. And he is able, and he has purposes, and he will do it. Jesus is Lord, and God has his purposes and his timing. I want us to take a little bit of time. I know I introduced basically the whole New Testament this morning. <laughs> and the church, and the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit, and the holy place of the church coming together. So that's where I want us to end. I want us real quickly to break up into groups, I don't know, maybe three or four. I want seven groups. So maybe this is a group here, this is a group here, and so we need five groups. One, two, three, four, five. You take chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, five, six, seven of Acts, and I want you to quickly just glance through it and come up with what do we have in common with the early church? What do we have in common with the early church? And I want somebody in your group to write it down. Don't take too long to figure this out. And then if something is repeated, like if prayer is repeated in your chapter, tell me how many times. Okay? What do we have in common with the early church? From your chapter... So you can keep working on that. It's a beautiful thing to see you guys pouring over scripture together. It's beautiful. 
So if you can keep working on that, if you're still working on that, but if not, share in these groups. What would that look like for you? Or if you're struggling with something, if you're needing your kids to be rescued, right? We all are in need of rescue. That's what salvation is about. And we are saved in the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus, again, represents his perfect life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. How do you, what would that look like for you to walk in that and be rescued? Your family and your neighbors to be rescued. In day-to-day life.
A lot of people look at that verse and they're like, oh, we should all be socialists. <laughs> they grow them from some of those passages. But what we need to realize is they still had roofs over their head. They were just sharing that they had need. And then we're going to see in Thessalonians, which Paul's not going to write too long after that, that um, he says, if somebody doesn't work, they don't eat. So they're, so it, it was they saw one another. They saw the needs of one another. They basically, your needs are my needs. If I have something that meets your needs, I'm going to generously give it to you. That's how we're going to love one another as we meet together. We are going to generously say your needs are my needs. Um, but, we, but they were still meeting in homes, so there were people who still had their homes um, because they wouldn't have had anywhere else to meet and to gather. So, and that's moving forward as well. So, We had eating together. Oh, eat. Yeah, just okay. eating together, like their meals together. Yeah. And you can add two more prayers, three more prayers up there. It's five times in chapter two. Oh, it was, there were five of them. You put two of them down there. Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Add two more. <laughs>
And it's the reason we don't witness a lot. Is that persecution? I mean, that's what made me start going. Why don't we speak these things out loud? Because I think if we spoke them out loud more, then it would keep it more fresh. Of, yeah, that's what I'm living in. Like, there is a Lord. We are free. We are empowered. We can love. We can, in Jesus' name. Like, how many times do we, out in the world, say things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory? Is that because of persecution? Or is that, I mean... But if you think about it, we're all so polite, you know, and we don't want to offend anybody. So we really only talk about it in church. Um, if we talk about it every day, we have the potential to inspire and encourage lots more people so that it stays fresh in our minds. What if we put it here? Can we share boldness with them? We could. They, but they had to pray for it, right? Which means they're just like us. But they have a great What else? Ministry. So, by that, like meeting people's needs? Yeah. What else do we have in common? You know, one big one I have to see up here, we said teaching, but we have the word, right? We have heroes of the faith. We have Moses. We have Abraham. We have. All of these God's story as well. They devoted themselves to teaching of the word, right? So those two kind of go together. And fellowship and the Lord's Supper and prayer. What believing? Believing? Signs and miracles? Do we have those in common? And I think the reason I bring that up is I think that there's for a reason. That was a unique time when God was coming and saying, I have come, right? And so anytime that he's done that, there are always significantly a greater experience of miracles that happened when Jesus came on the scene. Now it's happening when the Holy Spirit comes on the scene. Do signs and miracles still happen? Absolutely. That even that our hearts are changed and that we desire Jesus is a miracle in and of itself. But when we talk about healing, they do sometimes happen, but they don't. What I would say even what we have in line with them is this attitude of Jesus is Lord. So if he wanted to heal right now, he could. But if it is his purpose isn't in his story, he doesn't always do that. So you know what? We're going to give God freedom to be God. It always bothers me a little bit when people say, we have to expect God to believe. My response to that is, I expect God to be God. Whether he heals or not doesn't affect my faith in his purposes and in his pleasure and that he is always able to, in his time, do absolutely the most right and loving thing. I trust God. They absolutely have that. Because not everybody was healed and not everybody was saved. Um, so we also get to expand the kingdom. What? We also have the power to expand the kingdom. The power to continue. Well, and the extension of the kingdom was not just in the place where they were empowered with them. In fact, they moved out and they went into different. And we're, we we are missionaries still. World missions. Exactly. Sharing the gospel. We had. Um, and ours was repent and then be baptized. Oh, baptism's already there. And then 
also, um, you know, they are were of one accord. Mm, you know, in, in unity. That's powerful. Because in chapter six, too, as part of that in unity, they also divided themselves into different roles, and everybody had their part to play.
You wanted there to be a loving, intimate relationship with you and people all over the world. So, Father, we are here this morning responding to that, saying, yes, Lord. All that that means. Father, I pray for every individual woman in this room. I pray that she would walk confidently, hopefully, dependently on you, Lord Jesus, in your life and your death and your resurrection and your ascension. Would you show each woman here what that would look like for her as she lives her daily life confidently in the resurrection of Jesus? All praise to you. And then, God, would you show us, as we have so much in common with the early church, would you show that us, all of us, with our unique gifting, but in unity, would you show us what that means for us as we continue to gather together in your name? Teach us and guide us, Lord Jesus, individually and together for your glory and for the world to know you. Amen. Amen.